Greetings, fellow imps. I'm Imp Fossil Tom Henske, and I'd like to welcome you to From Nowhere to Now Here, Where Incarnate Memories Prevail. Like many incoming first years, I entered the university a blank canvas. You get it, nowhere. But four years later, I grew to now here. And when I look back at that transformation, it was the friendships that I built through the imps that were a huge part of that growth. But where did everyone end up? I'm going to take us on a journey to find them, to catch up with the friends we've lost touch with. And in doing so, my mission is to rekindle these amazing relationships. Greetings, Impland. This is your Imp podcast from nowhere to now here. I'm your host, Tom Hensky, and looking forward to a great guest today. Before we get going, a few administrative things. A big shout out and thank you to Anna Yates, who last week went and set up a Facebook page for us. So kudos to Anna for helping out there. Also, Mike Frederick, who's doing a lot of work finding imps and making sure that we get them on the mailing list. So big thank you to Freddie with all that. I think we have about 64 or 65 imps in our stable and growing. So thanks everybody. Really appreciate it and hope everyone's having a great time on this. Today we have Phil Gates, the beloved Phil Gates. And I'm really excited to have him on for a lot of reasons. I think he ties in a few of the generations of imps, but I also really know that when I first became an imp, he was the one who really kind of held my hand through the initial daunting first meeting, which was in the chapel. And I'm going to ask him uh, a few things about the chapel, if he knows any history to it. Uh, he's going to talk about a little of his, uh, his life in the ministry. Uh, he's going to talk about life on grounds. He's got a lot of historical knowledge, and I'm super, super psyched to have you. Phil, my good friend, how are you? I'm great and so happy to be here, Tom. Your podcast has just been spectacular. Really grateful. Well, it's uh, we've been looking forward to having you on and uh, it's going to be worth the wait. So why don't we just hop right in? So I think I'd like to know a little about is kind of the Phil Gates history leading up into your first days in Charlottesville. So can you give everyone a little of the background? Yeah, it's, uh, it's not little, though. To start with, I was an undergraduate uh, at UVA back in the dark ages. Which is to say, it was as long as I was an undergraduate here, it was an all-male college, university, well, college. Graduated in 1970. I was not an M as an undergraduate. I graduated, went to seminary, took a few years off before finishing seminary, went back, finished, then went to Notre Dame for grad school for a couple of years, and then um, came back actually to, to to the Charlottesville area to become a United Methodist clergyman in the area, in, in, in Louisa County, in Orange County, in uh, Nelson County, and then in Albemarle County. Did that for seven years and then came back to grad school at UVA, religious studies, working on a degree in, in religious studies, and starting in 1987, because as, as has always been the case, um, uh, Grad, grad school participation 
uh, was pretty minimal in various student organizations. And because I had a prior history at Club Wahoo, I was asked if I would, if I would help out. Started out with uh, uh, Judish and then went on to get involved with student council and then finally with the honor committee. Uh, there was one brief period where I was actually active on all three. When I say brief, I mean a couple of months. That was all. It was fun. I had a blast. During that, uh, I think when I first got involved, I might be wrong on this, but I think Pete Van Dusen was chair of the uh, Judiciary Committee as I was coming on board. Maybe that's what it was. Kenny Heath was involved and became the uh, chair. Adam was, uh, if I recall, was directly involved in um, Judish. So there's that component to my to my background. Another piece was that, uh, and this is kind of entirely independent, that I'd been a big runner back in the, uh, in my, when I was a clergyman in the Charlottesville area and, um, got to know, uh, fellow named Frank Burkhead, who got me, who was very closely involved with the basketball team. And Frank introduced me to, uh, Coach Holland because the summer before I came back to grad school, Coach Holland had a basketball camp and at the last minute they needed somebody to, uh, be a dorm supervisor for the kids uh, for the camp. So I did that, and that was a success. I had a lot of fun, and um, it went well. So I got invited back year after year for that. So I got to know uh, Coach Holland, basketball team, fairly well. I had a blast. So that was my introduction to athletics. That comes back later, uh, ties up later. Maybe you want to come back, come to that later. But that's kind of the background to where I got to know people uh, who were in the uh, who were imps. I had no idea that uh, any of these people were imps at the time. It made no sense to me. It wouldn't have mattered. I was a grad student. Grad students had nothing to do with imps. Um, at least that's what I thought. <laughs> and uh, um, that was that. So, so let me ask you, do you know of any other imps during your time that came in as a grad student? Yes. Uh, they were few and far between. I Yeah, I think Steve Saltzman did. I'm almost certain he did, and actually, he may have he may have preceded me as a as a grad student. Oh, uh, Robert Hardy. Later on, take us down the road of the seminary. So, what was going on in your world that kind of led you down that path, and what was that experience like? Give us a little background on that. Well, it's a it's a funny little story. Let's go back to the beginning. I started out as majoring in architecture. That lasted yeah, about two years, but. During the middle of the second year, uh, I began to realize what a high-risk career architecture was and um, didn't feel like it was, it was the one for me and moved on into, transferred into the college and ended up majoring in religious studies because I, I just, the faculty at the time was frankly one of, the, one of the best in the country and one of the best of all times. Uh, it was unfolding, it was developing, it, was, it, it has been a remarkable department for, for decades now. And I just got very interested and very involved in it. And I decided that that's what I wanted to do uh, for a career, was to teach. Um, turns out at, in those days, uh, the path to teaching religious studies, theology, uh, began in seminary. I mean, pretty much everybody that... Um, uh, got their PhD in religious studies, went to seminary first. That was just the expectation. Um, so I got a uh, had an opportunity to go to uh, Perkins School of Theology but at SMU, Southern Methodist University in Dallas. I, I went down there, and uh, it was terrific. 
I had a very interesting little side story. It's nothing to do with imps, but just a few weeks ago, uh, I got a, a random email from somebody who uh, yeah, I remember the name, uh, but I don't recall being particularly close friends with. And he didn't really remember me either, but he did write me. He looked me up and wrote me to tell me that he had a copy. He had the only copy of my master's thesis for seminary. And he wanted to know if I was interested in having it. Of course, I said yes. And I had looked for that for years and had lost it. Uh, and uh, what, what, what's, what's special about it is that it, it really was uh, theologically where all of my ideas came together and my beliefs and my convictions, and they, they hold uh, how much of it is sustained over time, um, philosophically, theologically, religiously. And, and what was that topic? Uh, well, it, it's... <laughs> It, it, the topic was it was called a credo, uh, Latin for I believe, and uh, it's our statement of belief. Um, that's that's what we had to do. So I just organized it around various uh, uh, convictions and tried to organize the convictions in a coherent fashion. Uh, it was uh, inspired by the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein and the theologian Karl Barth. Uh, whom I found, and it was, well, they found to be very, they, they, I thought, complemented each other well, although it's unclear whether either of them would have laid claim to the other while they were living and so on, but brilliant people, brilliant people. And then so, you became a minister. Yeah, ultimately, after, after trying grad school at Notre Dame, uh, that was a failed experiment uh, for a variety of reasons. But that said, I have to say Notre Dame was a Really, uh, the first year there was extraordinary. Blew me, blew me away. Um, What's the experience of, of going to uh, going to study in in a religious context amounted to really powerful. And when I got there, uh, Notre Dame was a really religiously diverse. The graduate program was a religiously diverse program. While I was there in my first year. Um, yeah, the Pope was Paul VI when I got there, I think, and uh, he died. And then so they elected John Paul I, who lasted two months. And um, interesting backstories talked around about that one. And then they elected John Paul II very, very quickly after uh, John Paul II's tenure began. He began to tighten down and uh, make non-Catholics less welcome, uh, both in the teaching and then consequently in the uh, student role uh, in, in religious studies. So that was part of what um, led me away. And there were other factors going on in my life as well. So, uh, so I knew I did. And I was able to find a uh, job in the United Methodist Church, which is my background, preaching, as it, as it were, pastoring, as I told you. So um, the Methodist Church is organized in districts. Uh, the district that uh, I was a part of was the Charlottesville district. District conglomerate into a, an annual conference, and Virginia was the annual conference. That's the way it worked. So tell me then, what was the road back to Charlottesville? Well, tell me about that. Well, very simply, uh, it goes back to my undergraduate days. Uh, I, w- I was in a fraternity, ATO at the time, and the guy was my uh, best friend. He had preceded me to, at seminary in, in, uh, in Dallas. And that's kind of where I found out about it. I, I, I explored other places, but the best best opportunity was for me was turned out to be at Dallas. And it was great because he and his wife were there and uh, we were very close and remained close. And so uh, 
he had moved back to Charlottesville. He was actually in grad graduate working a master's grad school at UVA, working in a master's in philosophy at that point. And he had spoken to the district superintendent in Charlottesville, find out if there were any openings. And it just happened that there was an opening that began January 1st or the beginning of January. And um, that was a right time for me to take a job. And um, it was a good job, great experience. I was very happy to do that. And I have to tell you, pastoring was a transformative experience for me. It's not what I expected it to be. And um, I don't know that I was particularly good at it because I came at it with way too uh, intellectual uh, an approach. But I learned in the process how important, not that I didn't know this, it, it had always been true for me, and, uh, but I really learned how important the, the personalism and being people and being personal with people. Um, and uh, it really, it changed me. Now, that said, um, the reason I came back to grad school was, was it, <laughs> this is hysterical, uh, as, a, as a part of uh, the, the district, or actually the conference, had arranged uh, an opportunity for pastors to um, make a, a tour of the Holy Land during Lent. Uh, they did this for a number of years. And uh, I think the second or the third year, I was able to, uh, to do it. And I did. And um, that was another powerful experience for me. Part of what, what its power was, was it reawakened uh, my intellectual neediness, uh, which I was not able to get in, in pastoring. And that's why I came back to grad school and, and ended up being at UVA. So then tell me, did you have a definite game plan of what you wanted to do when you got out of grad school or were you more in the mindset of I'll figure it out when I get there? Both. Uh, my, my, and my expectation was I'd get the PhD and, and teach. Along the way, it became very clear to me, uh, early on really, uh, that uh, getting a PhD in religious studies, in any of the areas of religious studies, was not a, was no guarantee for uh, getting a job teaching. Uh, and I needed to sort of cover my bases on that. In 1970, uh, there was, the field of religious studies was, was exploding in university world. Uh, but by 1987, uh, it had um, reached its max. <laughs> they, they, they just weren't. There weren't enough. There weren't enough old people retiring. Everybody was still very young, <laughs> so it was it was tough uh, to get a good job. Um, but uh, and that, okay, and that brings me back to. Um, well, this this happened ends up actually happening later, but the uh, athletics component I continued to do the basketball camps. At one point, I, I had to give up running because of injuries, and I took up swimming, and I got to know Coach Bernardino um, and uh, because I had the background with uh, basketball camps. He asked me if I wanted to help in the swim camps. I said, sure. Of course, what was funny about it was I had uh, helping in the swim camps meant I had to teach swimming, and I was just learning how to swim. That was just ridiculous. <laughs> but it turns out uh, learning is a good, good way to, or teaching is a good way to learn. And, and I think um, they call that the blind leading the blind, right? Yes. yes. But what was nice for him about it was most of the people that he had coaching in his camps were people who uh, were very experienced and capable of swimmers. And they didn't want to teach, teach the kids that didn't know how to swim. So <laughs> excuse me, that fell to me. And uh, 
That was fine by me. <laughs> and it was fine. I did that for a number of years. And so at that point, I again, I broadened my experience with, um, with athletics at UVA. And I also think this would have been true too, right about then. I'm not sure exactly how this happened, but probably because of Coach Holland, I got introduced to Jerry Capone. Jerry Capone was trying to create a program for recruiting football players, a new program for recruiting football players, and he wanted to have some respectability. I don't know why he came to me exactly, but uh, I was a graduate student, so I seemed to think that uh, might give it respectability. And he asked me to participate in it, and so I did. So I was involved with that for two or three years, and that was fun. So I, the sport, I, got, I it had a fairly wide exposure in athletics, which ended up leading me back to athletics in 1980, pardon me, 1997, I think it was, maybe 1998, um, when the position of life skills director opened up. At that point, it was only a part-time job, uh, but I was looking for a part-time job. Uh, it was kind of like a graduate assistantship, a little bit step up. Uh, I applied. I got the job. I did that for a couple of years. They said, hey, if you want to stay, we'll give you a full-time job. And I was looking for a full-time job at that point. So I stayed. I got a career. I moved. I found a new life. <laughs> and when you say life skills director or coordinator, w yeah. what is under that umbrella? Well, um, it was coordinator when I started, but three or four years in, I got promoted to director. <laughs> and uh, what's incorporated? What's involved in that? Yeah, it was it was a, a, a program in progress, development in progress when I started. But it became the areas that I was responsible for working as student athletes in and trying to create programming for were uh, career planning and um, uh, community service and leadership. So, And this circles back to you in a couple of ways, as you will remember um, Mr. Blank. Uh, discussing. There was a uh, leadership. We had two leadership organizations active uh, when I started. One was uh, the uh, Captain's Council. Uh, it, 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 the name changed over time and it became the SAC, Student Athlete Advisory Committee. And at that point, it actually was not composed of captains any longer. Uh, interestingly enough, about that, the idea of the SAC, which was an, an NCAA-mandated or organization for athletic departments was originated at UVA with the captain's council. Uh, captain's council was, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, the first in the country at UVA, which is an advisory, was an advisory group for, to communicate back and forth between uh, the, uh, the uh, athletics directors, uh, the coaches and the student athletes. Um, and the SAC became the same thing uh, over time. I fought hard to keep it as a the, um, captain's council, but uh that was a losing battle. And uh, then there were the SAMs, student-athlete mentors. You were a SAM, if I recall correctly. That's right. I, th yeah. I think I was in the inaugural group. Yes, exactly. And one of the things you did is, uh, in the inaugural group was create a, uh, a fundraiser called Shootout for Cancer. Uh, first of all, to help defray costs of Kurt Anolfo's uh, uh, expenses for Kurt's um, cancer treatment. But then it became an ongoing deal to raise money to support cancer therapy. And uh, that was still active when I started, and we kept it going. It changed over time, as everything does. 
but it was it was a, it was a great organization. Uh, the Sams were became were a great organization. Uh, they were student athletes who were there to support other student athletes and were getting training over time to support student athletes in um, good decision making. Uh, especially over time, it became about alcohol use and um, uh, it also, uh, but also just good decision making in general. And in, I guess, mental health is maybe the best way to talk about that generally. And just to add to that, it was the imps that threw the gasoline on that shootout cancer because it started as a little thing in the athletic department. And then I think I got to talking about it with Jonathan just because we were housemates. And then it came up at one of our Sunday night meetings. And then all of a sudden it wound up getting to almost every part of the university that year because of the diversity of our group, everyone went back and brought it to their group and it wound up being huge. So um, it's funny because that SAM program, which led to the shootout cancer, really took off because of the imps. And a lot of people don't know the history to that as the why. Uh, I believe that program, that shootout cancer is still going on today which is like, I hope so. I don't know that. I hope so. Like 26 years later. So if you think about uh, Ross was talking about, he wanted to do more, right? He was always saying we should be doing more things in the community. And I would uh, remind him as I have that that was a pretty darn big thing that we did uh, that that started from something very small, very small, very small, but it exploded. Like you said, Uh, and, and the imps were, were, they were they were fundamental in making it happen, uh, but there wasn't there was another component. What was shootout for? What happened at shootout for cancer when you started it? Uh, there was a lot of components to it. Was well, the the penalty shots? No, no, the, no, no. Uh, well, there was that. That was fun in the, in the amphitheater. <laughs> Remember, we had the goal set up in the amphitheater, and people would pay a dollar to take a shot. Right, right. There was that, but there were there were there were also the stakes. Or did you not have the stakes the first year? I don't remember the stakes. Oh, oh, oh. Well, one of the things that really became big was, I guess maybe it must have been after you left. Uh, somebody made an arrangement with, uh, there was a steakhouse in town, and I cannot for the life of me remember it, but it was a good one. And they contributed free steaks for several years. It became a huge picnic with uh, with a shootout going on. affiliated with it. Wow. I'm, yeah. I'm disappointed that I didn't think about that. That's right up yeah. my alley. Either actually right up my alley would have been Chanello's pizzas but and yeah. breadsticks. But uh, steaks, wow, that's living large. That's uh, the, no, that's, it, was a, it was a big deal. And it really, it was, it, it really sold the thing broad and wide even more so. What ended the shootout component, at least in the amphitheater, was uh, somebody kicking a ball into um, a religious studies professor's window and breaking it. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. that's one awful shot. That was probably yeah, it was. that was probably someone who was in Judish who took that shot. Probably. Oh, it could have been. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's let's take me through a couple things. Like so who was the person that you were connected most to with the imps? Tell me about like you didn't know they were connected to the imps at the time and then oh, all yeah. of a sudden you get tapped. So people want to hear that story. Tell us. The tapping involved Adam Arthur 
and Chris Havlicek. Uh, I think Adam called me and uh, explained that he, he Chris were friends and that Chris had uh, come to him because there was a, a scandal of brewing uh, in the athletics department. I think it had to do with uh, some basketball players getting drunk and getting caught. And they, he knew that I was friends with Coach Holland because of the, the basketball camps and thought maybe I could uh, use my influence to persuade Coach Holland to uh, go easy on the guys. And um, I think it was, it, was, it was a bit more finely put than that. But um, that, was, that was the deal. And I thought, oh, my God, how in the world am I going to do this? But Adam's a great guy. Chris is a great guy. I'll do whatever I can to help. And somewhere between my house and um, – I went 10 30 at night. I was, I was an old man even then. I was already asleep. Somewhere between my house and uh, the um, college inn, uh, right outside the door, they told me it was a joke. <laughs> That's awesome. It was awesome. I was, I was blown away. I, mean, I, I, I really, no idea. And uh, never, never imagined it, never would have expected it. Uh, and uh, the thing that really blew me away, and this is, if, if I, if I have anything to say about the imps, it's this. It was being welcomed uh, as, as really an outsider uh, in so many ways without any, any questions. You're here. You belong. We love you. And that was, that was the, the truth that uh, I saw in the imps for me and for everybody else. And I still think is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever experienced. And I think is, is what the imps are about is, how they have each other's backs at every step of the way. We have each other's steps, backs at every step of the way. Um, and uh, what, a, what a really special opportunity is to get to have new friends. <laughs> you know, what I love most about this podcast is it dispels some of the myths that we had about, um, I call it revisionist history of what was going on. Because I think in my mind, when I was there, and so you were probably tapped, if I had to guess, somewhere in 1991, 92, somewhere yeah. in there, right? Yeah. So right. if you th when I came in, I knew that you had graduated originally in 1970. Right. And in my mind, you were tapped in 1970 and had been at every Sunday imp meeting <laughs> since at least 1970, up until... Oh, I graduated probably in 94. So I think that that was in my mind exactly. I'm like, wow, no one has more history about the imps than Phil. He's been an imp since 1970. So tell me, so you were, let's say 1992 was the magical date that yeah. you were tapped in. Uh, how many years did you get to go to those Sunday meetings? This is, this is one of the silliest and most embarrassing truths I can, I can, uh, I can, own to, but I went to meetings every Sunday, probably until 1999. <laughs> and even after that, for with, with some frequency, because I, I was a student. Why not? It was a great group of people and I loved them and I loved being there and loved knowing what they were doing. It was just fun. Um, good friends. Just, just great, great stuff. Um, I, I guess I would miss a meeting here and there, but not often. And it was it just got to, got to have a lot of friends. Uh, through the years. Well, one of my bucket list items is to gather up everyone who's living in Charlottesville yeah. and uh, crashing one of the meetings on a Sunday with all the mm. alums and just show up. So that's, 
if anyone has any good ideas on how we pull that off, I'm all in. Uh, I'm, and, I'm with you. And, may, um, and maybe what we do is we uh, just do a sneak attack and come in and come armed with tuna and the whole thing for the crew. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that one plan. That's going to take a little bit of planning, like shootout cancer. What I don't know is where they're meeting now. Are they back at the uh, chapel? Uh, I don't know. If anyone knows the answer to that, are, where are the imps meeting today? Hint, hint, Bo, you probably know that. So if you could uh, reach out to me and let me know and we'll talk about it on the next episode. That would be fun, fun little history to look into. So you're now years later. Tell me <laughs> yeah. about your memories from the imps in terms of the, the fun you had and the relationships you built, give me a little bit of a kind of where are you now and it, how that those memories play out in your real world today. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm in touch with uh, imps of all kinds uh, all over the place uh, regularly because we're friends. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, I continued pastoring on a part-time basis throughout the 90s uh and one of the great privileges that i had is that was was capability of marrying people officiating at weddings and so there were um eight imps that i actually uh, officiated their weddings but beyond that there's just dozens of others certainly a couple of dozen others uh that for various reasons it's just because we had things in common uh we stay in touch. Uh, we're interested uh, in, in what we're doing. Um, you know, that's that to me is uh, has been been the privilege and the joy uh, uh, because of, because of uh, my affiliation with uh, swim camps. I and athletics. I got to know an awful lot of swimmers over the years, uh, athletes as well, uh, but also non-athletes, imps in general. I mean, it's just a very special set of relationships. I, if I, if I can. Two in particular come to mind that I, I just want to remember. One of them, uh, Jonathan brought to mind, and that was Kenny Heath, who was just a really special man, um, and uh, who died hmm, ten years, twelve years ago. I forget exactly how long ago, but and uh, what a loss he was. He was living in Connecticut and a lawyer. And then uh, there was also Dave Magoon, uh, who had been king. Uh, and then was in med school up in Boston at Harvard uh, and had an accident and died just so randomly uh, and just special people, uh, kind of people that uh, you, you hate to lose. Um, so you're retired now. Yeah. What, what are you up to? What are you doing? <laughs> what am I doing? Um, well, in my retirement, the kinds of things that I've done, um, uh, I walk four miles or more a day, um, exercise, try to stay healthy. Um, I read, do a little writing. Uh, I'm trying to learn, uh, learn more about music. Uh, one of my fun things this, this winter was to, uh, as an educational device, write a sonata, learn how to do that. I also travel, have traveled, not this past year, but in general have traveled to New York frequently. Uh, I love New York. Uh, I love theater. I love music. Uh, I love museums. Uh, the culture in New York is really, and you know that. I've visited you in New York many times. Just been great. And with my retirement, I picked up a couple of pet sitting gigs in New York. 
<laughs> one of which is uh, with uh, friends who actually live in uh, Yonkers and have cats and travel with some frequency. And the other is uh, with some friends uh, in um, live in Harlem who have um, a cat, two goldfish. I don't know. I think it's a couple of dozen plants and half Great Pyrenees, half Golden Retriever dog, whom you interviewed, one of whom just a couple of weeks ago. That would be Ben Arthur. And that, that gig just turned up. Actually, when I retired, I had a celebration party with a lot of my friends uh, in New York, uh, M friends. We had just an M gathering. And uh, Ben was there, and we talked about it, and it, it, it just turned into a thing. And so I get to do that a couple of times a year, or have for a number of years anyway. I think you got to be careful with what you say on these podcasts because some of the younger imps might come on and they might uh, try to extend that to babysitting services so mom and dad can go on vacation. So, heck, if you're doing pa- uh, plants and if you're and cats and dogs, I mean, what are a couple of babies right in there too? Why don't you throw it in? Uh, there? You could handle that. Nobody in their right mind. Would hire me as a babysitter. <laughs> just so you, I love dogs. Just so you know, no one in their right mind would ever think any of the imps would yes. be suitable parents at yes. all, at exactly. all, myself included, myself included. Okay, so you're doing that and you're keeping yeah. busy and keeping in oh, yeah. touch with people as they come through Charlottesville as they we yes. do once in a while. Like you and I got to do a couple of three years ago now. Yeah. You're done. Yeah. With my soon son. to be a Wahoo. Soon to be Wahoo. Spencer Hensky, soon yeah. to be a Wahoo. Very excited about that. It's uh, it, some one of my friends was making fun of me. He said, yeah, that's probably more important for you than it is for him. So that you, <laughs> so that you can go down to Charlottesville. And um, I had to tell my son that I promise I won't uh, invade on his privacy on the trips that I'm down there. Although you I'm, will. I'm, I will. And I'm also thinking that he will appreciate it when mom and dad come down to do things like laundry and all that stuff. Having said that, do you know that now there's a laundry service? So I remember having to have a roll of quarters and we didn't even have washer machines in Fitzhugh dorm. So I had to go to the dorm next door to do my wash. And that was kind of, and then you'd have to wait for a washing machine to open up. Now these kids are so spoiled they they come to the kids and do the lawn uh, to the rooms and they do the laundry for them. It's a service you uh, can sign up for. Tom, what goes around comes around here. Uh, during my entire undergraduate years, that's how all my clothes were put. We did not have washing machines in the dorms. There was no such thing. There were Spicer's Brothers laundry, and they had they had a laundry service at UVA that they came and picked up clothes in the dorms. I think they did it at the fraternity houses too. Wow. All Not right. New. Well, maybe, maybe I'm, uh, gosh, I must have missed that boat. Gosh, it was, I feel like <laughs> You're too I, young. I was probably the four year period where I had to do the only students that needed to actually do their laundry. But I told Spencer that his mom can go down to college and live with him to like make his bed, clean his room, do all that stuff. And um, somehow I saw the look on his face and he thinks that I was joking, but maybe not so much. So. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, so Phil, thank you so much for being on. I'm not letting you go without asking you a couple more questions. So hang in there. One of which is my favorite, which is the favorite word with the letters I M P. Gosh. Yeah. I've been thinking about that uh, for a while now because I've heard these uh, 
Hard to come up with. I, maybe my favorite one. I've got several. Thank you. Would be improved. Only give us the, give us the one. Is that the one? Is that the, your yeah. favorite? Okay. And that would be improved. That'd be the first. Improve. Okay. Tell me why improve. Because imps improve everything. Mm, that's good. That's good. All right. I like that one. You're walking on grounds tomorrow and you run into an, a current imp and you engage in a conversation and you need to give them a pearl of Gates wisdom from your experience. What is that pearl? It would be um, something like this. Don't take yourself too seriously. We know who does that. And that's not who we are. Take your friends seriously. Your imps, sisters, and brothers. Love them and let them love you. It's that simple. Simple yet very powerful. Very powerful. Anything else on your mind that you want to share with the crew? Yes. Actually, one other thing. You, you have frequently asked your guests uh, about uh, their tuna experience. And I, I want it to be known that there is at least one, and actually I know there are several others, imps, who have never had tuna. And you don't have to have tuna to have fun as an imp. <laughs> actually, I seem to remember that Charles Way was not a tuna drinker, yet possibly one of the funniest human beings ever on the planet. Yep. And probably act, and he's probably, hopefully not as strong as he used to be back then, because I don't want to fear for my life and in running into him after I tell the story. <laughs> yeah. But I've probably never met anyone who acted more juvenile on the imp marches, and <laughs> that was not tuna-induced. So that, no. was, that was really him. That was really him. Didn't he? Do you know where he is now? Uh, he was in New York for a while and I just, the NFL, right? Yep. He was in the NFL, played for the giants and, um, just was texting with him the other day. So he'll be a future guest for sure. Oh, fabulous. But so I, I thought he ended up working for the NFL in their office. He did. And now he's doing something that's more akin to finance, private equity type stuff. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. How lucky yeah. him. Yeah. All right. All um, right. Uh, anything else you want to share with the crew? No, Tom, I'm stunned at how quickly this passed. Thank I you. I told you, I warned you. I yeah. said it's going to be 30 to 45 minutes and it's going to fly yeah. and it does. And hey, what I love most about this is everyone's openness to share, uh, to give the backstory. I love the emails that I get that, hey, I learned this about Phil or Jonathan or whoever that I didn't know about. Uh, I think this is a great way for us to reconnect uh, make sure that you're getting all of the other imps that aren't yet involved yeah. and get them back on board. Uh, I always give the plug for the podcast and I'm still not sure why to make sure you rate it five stars because it's only a podcast for us and there's no commercial use of it. But heck, I hope not. <laughs> but heck, if we're going to do it, we might as well be five stars because let, let's face it, that's who we are. We're five stars. So. Um, thank you for taking the time and being on. Thanks. It's been great to see you on the monthly Ross calls and, uh, and Zooms and hoping everyone else can join us on that. And thank you for being you, Phil. You are well, likewise, the man. Uh, you are so the man. All right, Phil. Hey, hey, man. It was great talking to you. Have a great day, Imp Nation. Appreciate it. Take care.
Hi there, Tom here. Before I let you go, I want to tell you about my other podcast, Total Sense. As you may know, after my time as an imp, I went on to become a financial advisor. Okay, stop laughing. Don't act so surprised. In each episode, I share advice to parents about how to talk to kids about money. As a parent, I know how difficult that money conversation can be, so I hope you'll listen and find it helpful. It's Total Sense, C-E-N-T-S, as in money, available anywhere you get your podcasts.